In this episode, we take a look at the intricacies of low-code data pipelines with Raj Baines, the founder of Prophecy.io. Raj shares valuable insights into how performant low-code data pipelines are revolutionizing industries and transforming everyday operations. Raj discusses the founding story of Prophecy, the company's mission, and its approach to democratizing the creation of efficient data pipeline solutions, visual design, and code generation. We also discuss the technical concepts and conundrums such as data lineage, schema evolution, and metadata management, which are critical in addressing the challenges faced by data pipeline developers and businesses. The episode concludes on Raj's thoughts on the future of low-code data pipelines, the prophecy roadmap, and its potential impact on various industries, from healthcare to finance. This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Jocelyn Byrne. Hey, and welcome to Software Engineering Daily. We're super excited to have uh, Raj Baines with us from Prophecy. Uh, in past lives, Raj has been a product manager uh, at Apache Hive Hortonworks uh, when he took that right through the IPO. When I met him, he told me he was uh, working, he had in the past worked on compilers and database internals at uh, Microsoft, uh, which I always say you had me at compilers. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Welcome, Raj. Uh, thank you so much, Jocelyn. Really excited to be here. So let's talk a little bit about um, Prophecy to start with. Um, how, okay. you know, tell us a little bit about why you started it and what it does. So why I started it was that I was working with a lot of data users. Right? So I'm product manager of Apache Hive, uh, going to enterprises, seeing everything they had. And some of the products they had were more sophisticated than what we were selling. What we were selling was cheaper. And also I saw the users really struggle with uh, their ETL tools. And coming from compilers background, I, I looked at these tools and I was like, these are quite simplistic and something much more sophisticated can be built here and, and saw the productivity challenges people are having with big data. So that's when I decided to work on Prophecy. And, and at that time, like there was nothing in the cloud, right? So you have all these ETL products like Ab Initio, IBM Data Stage, really large suites written for the technology 20 years, 30 years back. And Informatica has done over 25 years now. So there is no replacement product in the cloud. So that was also the second thing. There seems to be a lot of opportunity in building the best cloud replacement product as Snowflake would replace Teradata for us. Yeah, that's an interesting model. I have to say in the data pipeline and data management world, we don't have a, a, enough of a meeting of the minds. It's really interesting that you come from this incredibly technical background which is one community in the data world. And then you're reaching out to the less technical community to make sure that they have uh, all the tools they need. So it's an interesting marriage, right? Of um, highly performant enterprise grade pipeline building that's accurate with inviting in all these other subject matter experts and business leads who um, have kind of been locked out. Yes, and I, I feel like that the main thing is that technology has to come meet the users where their skills are. And it's not like their skills, like their skills are different. So for example, somebody might really understand the business, the data of the business and the analytics to be performed, right? And that person is interested in transforming the data, getting it ready to do the analytics they want to do. Now, if you require them to be experts in data platforms, the Hadoops, the Sparks, uh, and and coding in that it's it's asking them too much. That's not their job, right? And the question is, can the technology not be built to meet them where their skill set is? And it totally can be built. So why won't we? One of, one of the things I've heard you speak about, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about, is what what is the experience of a data engineer who's not using Prophecy today? Oh. So a data engineer who's in, who's not using Prophecy is is um, you know they typically move to code. Some of them have uh, been in the previous companies, worked uh, with on-prem systems. So there's, there's two buckets, right? And they know what code looks like. So let's say somebody's been using Ebenezer. They had this tool suite, they could do visual drag and drops, you know, see data after every stage of the pipeline, quickly deploy it into production, search, see lineage, all of that, right? If they're changing a data set, they could look at a data set click a column and say, what is the impact if I change this column? Look at all the downstream users and understand the impact, right? And similarly, you had support folks who could look at um, a column which went wrong and you know, the, suddenly the team says, hey, I, I want to find out who last broke it. 
they follow up the lineage and say this is the last person who edited this pipe there, you know, this column and go there, right? And last three, four pipelines might be just passed through because, you know, in enterprises, these tables get like 1200 columns, right? The big fat tables. So now if somebody's coming from this background, let's say they move to the cloud, now they're writing scripts, right? They have a bunch of scripts. They've written them, you know, maybe they have some CICD setup and that that could be, you know, for a lot of them, it's manual. Still moving to production is, you know, separate and they create the jars and the jars can get out of date. <clears throat> so they are, let, let's say they're using Java or Scala with Spark and, you know, so then, then they have jars or they're using Python and there's dependencies. All the jars have to be sent on to the cluster. They're writing this code, uh, putting it into production. And so you have, you know, they're writing code in Git. Um, and you know, now if you look at that, um, they now it's like, let's say I have to look at the performance, right? Okay. This is not fast enough. So now I can go into the spark UI and look at the physical, you know, and what you see is the physical plan, which is a directed graph built out of the code. Now I can't correlate sections back to my code. It, it's a really deep dive. So the paradigm that I have for, uh, development is different from the paradigm I have for debugging, is different from the paradigm I have for performance. And every time I have to go into this, so now, okay, the Spark thing, okay, let, now let me go into the Airflow UI, right? And then you ask them, okay, you know, what does your average data quality look like for this project? They have no clue. How many new pipelines got put into production? They have no clue. You know, some column went bad. Who's the last person? You'll go, somebody will say, hey, this team, you wrote this data set last, and they look at, look through their port, pumble through it, and say, oh, this is a pass-through column. Look, we didn't touch it, right? And then somebody who's a metadata architect is like, I'm tracking personally identifying information, PII, right? And now they have to go through every source data set, then look, look through the scripts and see who used this column and modified it and wrote it into another. So the whole management is a mess. That's interesting. That's actually the best explanation. Let me see if I know what you're saying. So in the olden days, right, we had a kind of straight-through processing. It was, it, you could see the line of what you were building, right? You're pulling down different types of data, you're joining it, you're pressing it, sending it out, publishing that to your users. And it had like a view. What you're saying in the new world, there's kind of nowhere to orient yourself. It's just a big uh, glut of uh, scripts and activities and there's really no way to orient yourself to um, deep, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and to add to that, it's a big like what I call Google. Um, <laughs> so the thing is you are modifying data. Let's say I'm writing my Spark script or my big SQL script, and I've seen no, really, really, SQL is very simple when it's small. The scripts I've seen in high, like 500, 600 line scripts, unioning all these, like, you know, um, uh, very complicated operations, I would say, you know, um, correlated, non-correlated subqueries, all of that, they get really complex to read. So the basic thing is, let's say I have a script, I'm on line 541, there is data frame 17. And there's a line modifying it. I don't know what the data frame looks like. So the main thing is you, all your code is doing is transforming the data. When you are writing code, you cannot see the data you're transforming. How silly is that to have as your program, you know, development paradigm where you can't see the data. So now people write two, three lines, four lines, see the data again, data frame dot show or SQL, they run the select part of the query, run it and then again do it, and again do it, and then that's when they're developing. So it's a few lines, few more lines, few more lines, few more lines, and then that data engineer leaves, that ETL developer leaves, and somebody else comes in, and they, you know you go into a large enterprise, and there's like 30,000 pipelines, and the people who are there have not written it. Now they have to understand it, and this huge script is there, and they don't know what any of that means. So now you have to create that visual model, run it by pieces, to be able to understand and modify it. And and it's it's really a horrendous uh, paradigm for doing data engineering or building pipelines. So visually, visual pipelines is just fundamentally better. You know, that's the best explanation too, because I always think of low code or visual pipelines as non-technical, but you're really right to say it's a different skill set because it's just a way to orient yourself, right? Uh, in, this, in this data, in this pipeline, if you're new, if you're starting over, um, that's actually really, really helpful. Um, let's go to go back to Prophecy real quick and talk a little bit about, you have like three areas of focus, I think, right? You've got the uh, low code environment, visual environment, you've got some focus on data quality and then operational excellence. You want to just kind of hit on those so we kind of understand what the platform's focused on? Sure. 
So for our local development, we are um, our, we are looking at the entire data platform and saying you should be able to go end to end in low code environment. So what we've had for a long time is low code Spark. Most of our customers are on Databricks. We love Databricks, and a lot of customers are running like you know they could run be running ten thousand pipelines, right? 20,000 pipelines. And uh, so these people are running all these pipelines, developing them visually, developing reusable subgraphs, reusable components. So there's two things that make Prophecy unique. One thing is we, every time you're developing a visual pipeline, we generate code for it. High quality, completely 100% open source, and that matches what your best data engineers would write. And many data engineers have looked at it and said, yeah, that's the code I would write. And then the gems code is in GitHub, right? The generated code is in GitHub. The, it has tests with it. And, uh, you know, so you have unit tests, you have generated code, goes to GitHub, is high quality code. And if you read it, you'd be like, oh, this is very simple to read and understand. Let me just pause you there because that's not typically the case in low code generators. It's not typically the case that the code is reliable, right? It's actually kind of a often pretty squirrely. Yes, it's pretty squarely, and some other people say, oh, we generate code, do it, but then I say, have you looked at the code? The code we generate, you can look, you can understand, it's like a handwritten person would have written it, so we have it very, very well structured. Uh, you know, we even make it look nice, right? we really care. Yeah, I, I, I double-click on that, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I double-click on that because as a technical product manager, I think that's a super important question. There's so many tools that say they do this, but then if you're also trying to unlock all of your operations and implementation, you've got like long-term concerns about, you know, versioning code, uh, it's a it's well worth the question to look under the hood, the quality of the code that's being generated out of these tools. Definitely. So so then um, uh, going back to upper level, so now you can do this low-code visual development on Spark and you're getting code in Scala or Python, whatever you choose. And now what we released um, uh, just... Uh, Two, three weeks back now is logo SQL. So what you can do there is now it's like if you're on a cloud data warehouse and what you can do is you can do visual drag and drop and side by side we are generating SQL code. So this is basically the people who on-prem use something like Aldrix. These are data analysts, business analysts, and they want to they quickly build visual drag and drop on top of their data warehouse, get data together for their dashboard and then they'll connect that you know use that in tableau so those users now, now they can themselves without relying on the central data platform team again do visual drag and drop and what we generate is again 100 percent open sql uh, open source sql code and uh, we also chose the dbt format because we are looking at it and saying we want to use the most popular format for the code and uh, on Spark, it's very clear, like Scala has SBD as the build system. Now you go into the SQL world and they don't have, they didn't have a build system, SQL didn't. So everybody was writing their custom scripts and what dbt has done is like, here is a build system, right? It, like other programming languages, allows you to break up your SQL into different uh, files as Java would enable you to do, right? Every class has a different file and then they can connect, put configuration. So it's a standard way of organizing SQL files. And is that um, to help with the uh, performance of, you know, sometimes SQL gets really bloated. Is, does that help with that? Or why do we do that? It's it's basically modularity, right? So what we do is that for every visual component corresponds to a function. And for, and these refer to one another. And DVT gives you a way of splitting SQL files into smaller files. So they call them models. Each model might not be materialized as a table. So if I have customer as a model, orders as a model, if it's SQL statement, I say materialize as a table, then it's a table. If I have, uh, you know, um, sales, uh, total sales by customer, and now I'm producing it from customers and orders, if it were not materialized, then those would just become subqueries. So in that sense, it enables you to break these things into, uh, DBT enables you to say, I have a model, say customers, say orders, and, and, and products and so on, and create one SQL file per um, uh, per model. And, and for us also visually, it helps us break down. Now we can say each, um, you know, visual transform is a, um, so in our case, each subgraph is a SQL file and each visual component can become a, a CT, a common table expression. So with customers as this, with orders as, with customers as select this, with orders as select this, you know, my, 
total sales by customer is grouped by, you know, uh, grouped by customer total of orders. So, so something like that. Um, so, so basically we are able to split code and then build it with, uh, you know, configuration for development for prod, you know, you would do it in any programming language and they have a build system and, and then DVD enables us to do that. Break it up into smaller files, have configuration and stuff. So as you kind of went, you just went through this journey, right, of um, operationalizing your SQL with um, these DBT, right, components uh, core. Um, you know, I had a question for you. It might be this mo like this new release, or it might be looking back to um, creating 100% uh, um, parallelism between the code and the low code generator for, um, you know, Spark isn't easy. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I don't want you to really reveal any state secrets, but you know, as a technology lead, what were some trade-offs or some, you know, points of view you had to take as you're thinking about how to make this the, you know, the same for code as it is in this low code visual front end? So, so this has been very interesting, especially for uh, the SQL part, right, which is new, is, um, so one of the things you can do, uh, I didn't explicitly mention it, but so you can go to any existing DBD code project, an open source project, and open it up in Prophecy. And it will open up as visual pipeline. So this visual to code is bi-directional. We are saying visual and code is the same paradigm. As long as, so now as, as a, let's say if you're using DBT. So what you can do is open any project. It becomes visual pipelines. You can edit it visually or you can edit it in code and the other side gets updated instantly. So you could collaborate, right? If you're working, this happens in industry quite a bit, right? Where you're on the phone or Zoom. Yeah, so let's say that you are in a DBT project and some of your users write to like, uh, you know, prefer SQL code and they can write their SQL code or SQL code and then they can ask their other teammates who prefer visual drag and drop to come and collaborate on the same pipeline and the other people can view it visually edited. So it, it enables both of the users to be able to do the exact same thing. Then comes like, how do you represent you know, it's now it becomes an interesting challenge to merge those two paradigms because everything has to match exactly. And, uh, and, and also if you edit, um, you know, so it's like there is an, a complete equivalence in, in both sides in that like if um, you go back to visual and come back to code, it has to be, if you didn't modify it or if your modification is just, you know, one expression, it should be one expression modification. And, and that's, I think, something we've achieved, of course, you know, here my uh, compiler and uh, those uh, parsing and code generation skills come into play and, and we have, you know, have brilliant team who's built this. But in that sense, right, we have um, the, the correct, uh, so we have a multi-layer thing where in the top, you as you log in, you can see lineage of models feeding into other models, feeding into other models, something that you could even see in DBT at the end, right? In DBT, after you write the code, you can visualize the lineage. Of the code. Above, like this model feeds into this model, right? At the top level, the customer feeds into customer orders and this. When you come into prophecy, you can see the top level view visually. The only thing that what's different is it's editable. So now you can double click on one of the models and that will open that SQL file as a subgraph and that subgraph will have visual components and that completely describes that and it will have multiple common table expressions and everything. You don't need to know that visually. Visually, it's just a single pipeline. So let's say like I was just uh, doing some analysis on like loan underwriting, mortgage loans, right? And all of a sudden I thought, oh, you know what? Uh, I need to understand what upstream data Raj is pulling for this particular credit scoring model. Uh, and I go in and I see that it's the wrong one. <laughs> You're using some copy of something. Then I can edit it directly, right? And then replace it with the correct one. With, with the correct one, yes. And then if you want to find the correct one, you can just browse your data warehouse, pick the correct table, just drag it onto the canvas and say, I want to use this and connect it to the component and delete the old one visually. And the kind of lineage you're offering is I could look back and say, how many decisions did I make with the old thing, right? Yeah. Yes. So, so in that sense, you know, you have the top level because these days people are talking about having more than 5,000 DVD models, right? Okay. And, and that imagine that right that that can get quite complicated so you know we are also enabling people to or encouraging people to break it down into slightly smaller projects and then you can see things across project you can see things in a project but what you're looking at it is overall you're looking at 
hey, these are all the models I computed. This is the next set, next set. And you can see all of those visually. And uh, yeah, and I, I think the, the thing that we are looking at is it, coming back to, um, again, the, the going back a little, we kind of uh, did a deep dive, right? And so we had the Spark piece, and now we've done a deep dive into the SQL piece. And uh, so, so, and, and then continuing that thread, if, if I may, uh, going back, we also have low-port airflow. So that's something which uh, we have released, and it will be very, uh, uh, 3.0, it's out there, 3.1, it will be more mature. Uh, basically, um, and so that, what that enables you to do is visually orchestrate airflow pipelines. And, and the thing that makes our product unique is, like I said, you could create your own visual components. So you can create new Spark components, you can create new SQL components, you can create new Airflow operators, and you can add them to the visual canvas and have everybody else use it. I think we kind of started from this overall question and then we went into Spark, did a little bit of deep dive, went, did a much deeper dive into SQL, and 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 then this is the entire low-code piece of the product. But, but apart from the low-code piece, right, we have um, data ops, what that means is everything is Git, Tests, uh, you know, you have your code on Git, you have your test for the transformation, you you develop in a Git branch every time you uh, you, you enable a schedule and then once you uh, release it, at that point, you know, all the artifacts for that, you know, orchestration or schedule, which is run this pipeline at 9 a.m., get deployed automatically. You don't have to worry about that. It can also work with some people use it with their existing CRCD system because, you know, if you're connected to Git, you can do that. The other thing is they just use R. So in that sense, you know, you're using proper software development practices. You have tests, you have branches, and you know, you're following a proper release process, something that the world of visual tools has not had. And the port, and, and that enables you to get more confidence, right? So some confidence will come that all my tests passed, right? And then the other set of confidence can be, you can also say, these are my assertions on the data set. So you can say, these are my expectations. And then there is anomaly detection. That's another area where we are uh, starting uh, work. We're working with our first design customer um, where you can, right now you can do basic expectations and we'll get more anomaly detection in the next release as well. So now we are saying, hey, we'll also monitor your data set. So now once you have your unit test for transformation, you're observing the quality of your data sets, you can push to production much quicker with a lot of confidence. So that is going to accelerate the speed at which people can put data pipelines into production. So that's the second big piece with with tests for the data pipelines and for the data. Um, and then we have search, we have column level lineage, and, uh, and, and we have basic monitoring, which will become better over time. That's another big area to go into. Um. You know, I want to ask you some other questions about just general topics, but one thing that's kind of interesting is there's just a, and you may or may not have an opinion on this, but um, I hear a lot of people talking about transforms, tracking transforms. And, you know, I feel like people use a lot of different definitions for types of transforms and you have column level lineage. Does that allow me to see, I sort of, I mean, how do you define transform, first of all, as data? The transform is you're taking, a, you're taking a one or more data sets and transforming the data between it, right? You could be doing something as simple as a join, right? That's a transform, a filter is a transform, anything that will transform the data, or it might be, you know, uh, uh, joining two tables and creating creating a whole bunch of computed columns based on that. You might be enriching data with other things. Also on of these, right? So you have source and then you have targets and in the middle, everything you do is transforms. Okay, that was my question. It's like when you move it around, Anytime yes. it's like all the touches, the moving it, right? Can change yes. it. Okay. Yeah. I just feel like um, a lot of conversations need to include that full, you know, everything from a fancy calculation all the way to just moving to target, right? Can change the outcomes. Um, and I just wondered if you're hearing more about that. People are asking you around. Is that something in, like in, I know you do lineage today, but you're going to expand on transforms in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, lineage is something that is allowing you to, in a sense, observe the transformations, right? But so what we are focused on is enabling people to do transformations, right? And that's the only thing that has changed in the modern data stack, because what you had earlier was ETL, right? 
extract transform load and now you come in and there's a lot of tools like pipetran and the you know 20 clones of theirs and they have extract and load so that's like the connector piece you have a connector here a connector here and you're going to put the point to point data motion so if you do that what you're left with is all the source system a copy of them on the target system but still it doesn't help you get all the right analytics so after that you have to do transforms so 90% uh, of the data work is actually transforms. And, and it's something that when I talk to investors and when I've talked to some customer, customers understand it a little more, it's not obvious that, hey, the work, the work is all in transform, not in extract and load. That's like, okay, yes, you have to do the work, but it's, you set it up and it's going to keep running. But where the users spend their time is in data transformation. And that's a very hard thing to crack like a little bit of gray area, right? Depending on who's worried about it the most. So that, that's helpful. Uh, let me ask you this. You talked a little bit about, you know, these massive implementations on data brick, right? There's lots and lots of data, tons of um, workspaces, right? Um, what have you seen that's worked for, I think I know what you're going to say, but, you know, how would I implement this? If I was, you know, uh, the head of data platform, I'm like, great, let's do it. Yeah. What types of teams? Is it the data science team that embraces this? Is it the business analyst team? Like, How do you get going? So we, we are seeing two primary patterns, right? So, one, uh, so sometimes it's a line of business team. So we have like a Fortune 50 medical devices pharma company. They come in and they want to do some supplies in right? So now they're like, okay, they have their ERP systems. They're going to go into, you know, data breaks and then they're going to transform the data that's a line of business team who wants to do analytics they have access to the source data uh they you know not many of them write code they're doing building visual pipeline now then you have uh the central data platform team so the central data platform team some of the people are like i want to i can write spark code and some most of the people uh, and depends on you know depends from company to company a lot of enterprises who have had visual drag and drop on-prem products, you know, they have hundreds of engineers who prefer that, the visual better. So, so that's one, but uh, so what, either the data platform team themselves uses it or they provide us as a service to the line of business team. So I think the second thing is very interesting because what it's saying is that, okay, I, you know, the central data platform team is saying, I'm, I bought Databricks, I set it up and now we can build pipelines on it, but nobody else can consume what we have because, you know, they don't, they're not experts in Spark. And I guess now they're starting to use SQL. So that's, that helps. But, you know, some of them, not many of them write complex SQL also because the data pipelines in SQL, since they have so many steps, they get quite complex. So what, uh, what they do is they say, okay, you know, now as part of my platform team, I'm going to put prophecy on top and provide it to all the line of business teams. Now, if line of business team, uh, now that makes a lot of the data and their data platform accessible to a lot more teams. Those teams can start building a lot of the pipelines themselves. And and unlike the last generation, right? Let's say you had Alteryx on-prem. You could do visual drag and drop, but that would only run in Alteryx. That's a desktop tool. Maybe you could run it on Alteryx server, but it's not native to the platform. Whereas here, if the line of business person is doing visual drag and drop, they are building same quality of data pipelines when they, because a lot of them have been rewriting these pipelines, right? Uh, the data analyst built in all tricks, then it gives to the central data platform team, then they rewrite it to run at scale and on their data platform, and now that's gone, right? They all have access to the same platform. And the second thing is like now the data platform team is able to build standards. So they can write Spark code and say, this is how you access our internal system. Right, and some of the things get more complicated. Right, this is our security. They can, they can kind of enforce. They can enforce standards, right? Yes. So what what they're okay. doing is they are creating new visual components that go into the menu, which do standard things, so that every but all line of business teams are doing the same thing. So think of a security library. This is our encryption. This is decryption. This is anonymization. And I put the visual components in your canvas from a line of business you know, for every line of business and now everybody has the same operation, they can do it. They could also have a, something that does, you know, sending a message or, you know, an alerting task if the thing fail, if something fails. Now they can create these operational standard components and have everybody use them. So what they're doing is 
creating these reusable pieces either for connecting to their internal systems or their operational um, um, things that they want to uh, streamline and standardize and also for the business logic which is reused across many teams <laughs> because what you can do is create visual components create subgraphs of visual components and one project can publish it another pub, uh, project can subscribe to it so now you can start reusing a lot of that instead of you know building each uh, oh, thing yeah. again you and, can reuse it and you, can, you, can update it. you can start updating it without too much right if you were to update that you wouldn't would you break the downstream or it would just blow it so there is versioning right so there is versioning so basically but your project will depend on another project as of a particular version if the if the project you depend on releases a new version you can choose to uh, try the new version test it and if it is right you can commit to it and say okay i move to the new version or you can stay on the older version that's very sophisticated right that's a yes, great it's, yeah and then a lot of these things are not clearly visible right when you're using a visual tool or that looks like a visual tool this looks like a visual tool it's like we've we've thought through a lot and um and and built a lot and it's uh sometimes you know not not easy to see in the first glance i uh, yes that's right um this is the the thing about really great technology. If when you don't see it, it's working. And, um, uh, yeah, so but... just to wrap up that question, sorry if I'm so so in that sense, right? So what we are doing is enabling the data platform teams to build a platform and make it a, available to a lot more people. Some people on their team, where you are making people more productive, and enabling the line of business teams to self serve and be able to transform data themselves and then only come to the central data platform team for some heavy lifting. So in that sense, you know, it, it, it's 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 democratization, it's it's increasing productivity of all users in the data platform and the line of Yeah, um, that's great. Thank you for talking through that and giving us some ways of thinking about the technical decisions and underpinnings that um, put into the product. All right, I'm going to ask a question now. You can't say you don't have any, but... Um, what about competitors? And it may not be a competitor across all that you do, but in portions of what you do, you know, what do you hear from customers or typically? Sure. So in terms of competitors, right? So or let me give you a little bit of a, a, a market map in a sense, right? So one in buckets. So one bucket you have is the bucket of on-premises ETL product. So if you go to Gartner Magic Quadrant and I work with Gartner, really, really sharp guys. Um, what they have is um, the on-premises market right now because that's that's where the large footprint is. And mostly when customers come to us and when we hear of an ab initio, an IBM data stage, SaaS DI, um, Microsoft SSIS, you know, all tricks, they're looking at it and saying, this is what I'm on. And I have 10, 20,000, you know, a large bank would have 80,000 80, or so pipelines and I want to move to the cloud and how do I get there? Right. So one, they want a replacement product. And it's the same, right? If you were on Teradata, you'd want a snowflake. If you are on Abinitio or data stage or something, you'd be like, okay, I, I choose prophecy, let's say. Then the second piece is, can you move me? So what we've done is we've written automated uh, compilers to or transpilers to be able to import the pipeline. So these are very sophisticated ones. We have one for Abinitio, we have one for Informatica, for data stage. Uh, one even for Snap Project, one customer asked for it. So what we we have an expertise where we can quickly be build these uh, cross compilers and pull in. But but our interaction with the on-prem products is that now once you move to the cloud, right? Uh, now either you're going to write code, and a lot of teams are like, okay, I started using Databricks or I started using SQL, maybe Snowflake, and initially we wrote some scripts, and after a while they're like, okay, this is not scaling. Right. Um, so either you can write code, so you can write Spark code or SQL code, or you can use a low code. Product. Now in low code product, one product of the last generation, Informatica, has built a cloud. The rest of them are not even attempting. Right. Um, so so rest of them, you know, all of them have to be replaced as you move to the cloud. And then there is Metillion, which is also a, a simpler product. They don't generate code. They don't. And they are not extensible but they can give you simple transforms on a data warehouse, SQL data warehouse. And uh, so we've seen Metillion a few times in the market, um, but those are the only choices, right? So either you say I use Metillion or you say I'm going to use uh, 
uh, Informatica or you're going to write code. Now, He's going to code it yourself. Or you're going to code it. So for us, um, 90% of the time it's us or code. Like literally, there's not like where we are being POC'd against another product. The other product, the cloud vendors have some product, but they are also not very good. Like, I, I wouldn't want to name, name them since they're our partners. No, you don't but have to. <laughs> every, cloud, every cloud vendor has their native ETL product and nobody uses it. Well, this is a, the platform play, right? I mean, the minute you bring up any functionality, all the platform guys are like, well, we also do that. We have we have a beta, we have a beta product. Um, yes. TBD, whether it does that, what it's supposed to. But if, if they're building something that requires an API, they're able to do it. But if the cloud vendors try to build products which have UX and visual drag and drop and, you know, a lot of things that require, um, you know, a lot of design and working closely with customers, you know, that's hard. If you do build a database, the interface is simple. They're able to build it. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm going to think more about that. That's a good way to distinguish who's a threat and who isn't. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, we can't do any talking about technology without asking a little bit about uh, LLMs. And I'm just curious if you're, um, you and your team have been giving that some thought or, you know, you know, I know you work with GitHub quite a bit. So what's, uh, can you share with us directionally what your thoughts are? Yeah. So we are working on LLMs and, and for us, it's very interesting in, in a sense, we are in this unique space, which, which is, our, and I'll tell you how the structure of the space is different. So when you're looking at LLMs, right, what are the things I want? Right. So structurally, the first thing that's interesting is if let's say I'm using um, GitHub Copilot, I am writing Python code and I write an English sentence and GitHub Copilot gives me rest of the Python code. That's great. Either it has to be 100% right or I have to understand it and modify it. So it is a productivity increase, but it is not um, not democratizing at all because I still have to know the Python, right? So it does not enable more users. It makes the existing users more productive. So that is what a GitHub Copilot can do. The basic thing is, even if you're writing in English you and you're going to code, you have to know the code. Now, what's different here structurally, but you want in the structure for us is, if you have any, a data user who writes English, and let's say there's a bunch of startups that say, hey, we can convert English to SQL. That's great. But the thing is, what we have is SQL and visual pipelines are the same thing. So you write English and we can immediately give you visual pipelines where you can see the data after every step, open up the visual components. So you have to know, you don't have to look through the complex SQL. You, you'll always get a correct data pipeline. So that's what we're building that you write some English, you'll get our data pipeline. It will always work. Maybe it does 80% of what you want to do. And you can look at the visual pipeline and say, oh, kind of does what I want. Let me make a few changes. But then guess, guess what happens? You make those changes and we get data of what the right pipeline to produce was. Because now the user can go and modify it. So one is, in our case, it's a productivity boost and it is democratization. It's enabling a lot more users to use the product. So, you know, there is like, if you put a... So the use cases that we are focused on is and this will come in our next release <laughs> later in the summer. Um, if you put the first table, you know, you drag and drop customers, it's going to come and say, I think you're going to do a join with the orders next. Right? Or if you start to write an expression and you've written that expression somewhere else, or we can look at it and say, oh, you wanted to reformat the date. This looks like the most likely thing you'll do. You want me to just add it? So if, what else would, what are the users doing anyway, right? They're going to... Uh, uh, you know, they're searching online for what code to write for parsing date and then copy pasting it, right? We can just do it with machine learning. So there are a lot of things. And then, you know, nobody writes to, likes to write get comments. Nobody writes a description on their pipeline. All of that can be done with LLM. So it, it's a very, very interesting area for us because so much can be uh, automated away. So we think over time, you know, we, we are progressing in that direction. But we'll have some exciting stuff to share in a few months. Excellent. I think you're probably looking at some of these open source LLMs. Yes, that that's a tricky one, right? Because uh, we have to, for us to be able to use it, it has to be Apache 2 or uh, BSD licensed. Um, for example, what Facebook has released, Llama models, they cannot be used commercially, right? We are working with large banks, large healthcare providers. So some of them are on-prem. 
a uh, few of them uh, a lot of them are um, have strict security requirements so they might get our software inside their vpc and it's just not feasible for us to make a call to open ai right that just doesn't fly so we have to pick a different model i got you um that's helpful um anything else directionally that we should be looking for in your next releases um collab yeah i think the other thing that we are build uh, we are coming going to come up with at the end of summer is what we'll call gem hub so basically what you have is that you are able to create visual components right but now what you can do is you'll be able to create and go to a library and publish right so you'll have a gem hub you go there you can see all the different visual components and subgraphs which are published by various teams in the organization and some that might be available generally publicly if one customer asks for it we'll create it not put it in the main palette but then we we'll create this extra security library this extra healthcare library this extra you know so so these visual components can all be you know one uh, companies can create their own and share it with all the teams and whoever want to use it can go to this hub uh pick the transforms they want to use and start using them or they could even browse the public ones that we are creating or somebody else in the community is creating and start using that so that's the, once you have that kind of a hub experience is more like a store but free right so you can go there and pick visual components you want so i think that could become quite exciting um you know i'm just from the old open source world i just want everybody to share everything so i think especially even inside a company a lot of really smart people figure out answers and if only they were shared it'd be so much better right and like airflow has gotten success because of that right they have operators and people one person builds it and many people use it and you know we can do that for the entire data engineering or data transformation space Let's talk a little bit about the business and being a technical founder just in the last few minutes we have here. Um, so you and your co-founder are both have both have deep technical backgrounds, right? Um, how did you guys connect on and decide to build a company together? In in my company, it's a little in here. It's in Proxy. It's unique. I started with the company alone. Okay. So then, um, um, and then. till i got seed funding it was uh, just me and a couple of developers who who are actually based out of india because i didn't have much money and, uh, and then there is uh, bhati skydeck has this accelerator where i met one of the co-founders who joined right after uh, i got the seed round and then the, uh, another co-founder uh, so that is machik and then vikas uh, is uh, the second co-founder and he also joined after the seed round but he's from sales background uh or uh, you know uh, so he is like the business side and um so yeah so in that sense they joined a little bit later but i i think i uh, but vikas angel funded the company and helped me raise money early on he stayed involved uh with us part time till uh, we got um far enough to be able to sell the product to their yeah, second customer because we had one large customer as a design customer after that you know that that's when he joined because that's when it made sense otherwise that we'd just be burning money without the right product you met through, you, so you connected through your accelerator experience right one that's connected you... right senator second person i knew from school okay uh, he was uh, in the same computer science un- uh, undergrad program back in late 90s <laughs> dating myself here but um yeah so those of you who are taking your computer science classes now just be really nice to all of your students <laughs> you never know you might end up working with them years later yeah. um, um so so my question is it's, i was just curious about that because a lot of technical founders um one they think they have to wait till they have a great idea or they think they have to wait until they have a co-founder so in your case you had a great idea and you did not wait to have a co-founder you just got started no. hey, uh, i mean it's 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 really funny i mean i'm not like nobody would join me <laughs> I, i'm not saying like you know like, i wasn't how was it i wasn't against it i'm just saying oh, nobody was here <laughs> people have all these beliefs that you know everything is like oh i did this and then that that's how you market stuff that's not how stuff really works that is like i'm like okay i need a co-founder and somebody's like oh i have young kids and somebody like not the right time for me and you know you don't have you know 50 people who could be co-founders you just have a few right that that you think could be good co-founders and if they're all busy with something else if they're really smart they're probably busy with something else 
you know so it's not easy to find them and then you know this this worked well for me and then the other thing same about funding right it's like you go to the investors and it, it's hard to get investments and you know uh, so, yeah. so yeah, are you talking yeah. to any invest? Are you talking to any investors now? I mean, the environment has changed. Oh, yeah, we'll we'll start raising our Series B in a couple of weeks, actually. Oh, okay, uh, All right. Yeah, so we're we're doing pretty good. Um, we've done uh, yeah, more than five x year on year on revenue. So we are doing uh, we're doing pretty good. Uh, we have a lot of uh, Fortune five hundred and a lot, and I would say a lot of uh, Fortune fifty customers now. So, so in that sense, we have uh, so so the company is doing well. We are raising a Series B. Um, it, yeah, so it looks like uh, it, it's even in the current market, people are investing. That well, you have a good idea. You know, I always tell people, you know, good yeah. ideas get funded, right? Um, my go ahead. And then for us, right? It's for me actually. This is what has happened. Is okay. So the money, the valuation will come down. That sucks. Right, but on the other hand, you know, everybody you like, we are selling enterprise revenue, solving a real problem, replacing a multi-billion-dollar spend on Bram, and nobody was interested. People were like, are you bottoms up? Oh, you are you going to mid-market first? Right? Are you PLG? I'm like, no, we are replacing a big category. But then it it wasn't easy for Snowflake to, you know, very famously, Snowflake could not get their Series B. Right? Nobody in Bay Area would fund. Because the investors are looking for this tiny thing that quickly gets traction and they fund it, right? And and that's what was um, really selling in 2020, 2021. Nobody was asking anything about durability, about moats, right? You have five grand, then you have 10 five grand competitors. I'm like, how do they get funded? Five grand is com- can be commoditized by Airbyte, right? Then obviously the Airbyte will not have a moat. Right. You may have already asked me, I mean, you may have already answered this question, but you know, what advice would you give to other technical founders? I remember when I first met you were at a networking event, you were at, uh, hanging out and I was like, who, who do you want to meet? I'm like, I don't really love talking to people all day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and like I did all my talking and I feel like that is for like technical founders. You're working in code, you know, you've got like a certain discipline and point of view. Um, you know, what advice would you give for other technical founders who might be struggling with, you know, balancing so, I mean, the balancing is a tricky one. So I think the general advice, the first advice is about what should one build, right? So if you are like me, you've gone through, you know, at least a couple of decades of work, I would say I won't take market risk at all, right? At that stage, if you, if your strength is execution and your strength is building the product and uh, and the business, you should be going for an existing replacement. Right, you have a paradigm shift. People are moving from desktop to mobile, or mobile, or moving from enterprise to cloud. That's a great transition to have. The second thing I would say is uh, to be very grounded in fundamentals. Right, like when we built Apache Hive, right? Let's say I was looking at the product, and you know, they said MapReduce. I'm like, this is nuts, right? What are they doing? And then, thank God, like I would have no credibility to be able to say that and have people believe it because Hadoop was so cool. And then, um, you know, Stonebreaker says, what the hell is this? And then, you know, now he's a, a, you know, database guru, but people still are like, no, 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 this is great. And, you know, I got like hype with MapReduce and we replaced it. The first thing built a, a DAG based engine, which is base, and it got 100x faster. 100x faster? How bad was MapReduce? And, you know, Google's talking about it and every intern is coming. So the other thing is there is a lot of noise in the market. Now, now let's say I am selling high, I don't know, but what, 250 or 2000, doesn't matter. Say 2000 or $250 a port. But what you're offloading is Teradata at $250,000 a port, right? Or that's what used to be. So the basic point is why is that software commanding that much price, right? And then you look at it and say, like, people came, went back and rediscovered data warehouse like Snowflake uh, built by Oracle people, right? So basically, that's the other thing is like, the fundamental thing is like, that Hadoop detour was just like a wrong direction and that will go on for a decade. So so that's the other thing, right? It's it's about, depend if you're building a durable B2B business, I would say go to enterprise. And the reason for that is your users are sophisticated. Even though you might say, oh, they're not, they're sophisticated in the sense they have large-scale problems and 
they have seen two generations of product, right? So, so what happens, let's say you have the modern data stack company, right? If you, they are like fishing in a small pond, right? Not in the ocean. So what happens is you are like, I'm a startup founder. I have never seen the technologies like God read it. Right. And then, um, um, so you're like, I haven't seen the last generation of products, right? So that's what's going on right now. So they build a product and then they go sell to another person in the startup who's also, so this person, let's say is five years out of school. They build a product for another person. The user is five years out of school in a startup. They have never seen the last generation of enterprise product. They go to an investor who's five years out, uh, you know, out from uh, school doing, uh, you know, from a consulting program or from an MBA, you know, become um, well, an, an analyst and senior analyst and this, they have never seen it. So, now they're funding all of those, right? So it's like here, metadata is going to be a space and data observability is going to be a space and all of this. And I'm like, no, these are features. And the thing is, the thing I would advise is like, you can go look at it as if thousand people believe it, including smart investors, smart founders, and smart users, they are often all wrong. They could still be wrong. I love what you're saying. Yes, yes. I mean, that's a don't be too um, overawed. Right. It sometimes thing you come into, you come in and it's like, oh, well, this is already been, this is, this question's already been answered and the answer works. I think it's so important. And I like what you're saying. It's just to question that and not let yourself be set back on your heels. You could be the person with the next big answer. I think that's, yeah. you know, yeah. And, and, and the thing is that, you know, and, and, and in that way, you know, kudos to the snowflake team, right? In that, you know, um, because, who would have said that I'm going to come in and build a new cloud data warehouse with Redshift and everything there? And they're like, no, there isn't a good one. And you're going to build the whole thing. Yeah, I like that. So big ideas and big Design. like shifts, right? Where you can really take over a quadrant or an old process that's moving. Um, I, I really like that, that perspective. Yeah. And, and in that sense, it's easier to scale as well, right? Because now when I'm like, I'm on top about B2B, right? And it's like now uh, if I have to scale and we hire an army of salespeople, let's say. There are budgets allocated in companies. You're going to go there and they're going to say, what are you buying this for? I don't have to go create a market. God, I don't want to hit my head against the... I mean, it, I am... It, it's amazing the people who can, you know, build a new market and, you know, go and convince everybody this is the new way to do it. As a first-time entrepreneur, life is hard enough. I can't create That's a... Not- I can go replace a category, budgets are allocated, people are doing a platform shift. I can go build the right technical solution, build the right company machinery, and that is hard enough. And you know, and you speak the language. You're speaking right the language on. that the customer understands, right? They understand. Yeah, the customer yes, understands. And the other thing is, you know, go start working. Like, you know, you'll have some, your idea will be half-baked. Go find a design customers. The customers have been solving this problem for 20 years. They'll teach you. I know we're at the end and we have to leave, but I actually think that's such an important uh, concept to have that vulnerability. It's so uncomfortable to build something that might have flaws or that you have to kind of show people before it's ready. And, um, you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but I do see a lot of entrepreneurs like you who are willing uh, to kind of have some rough edges in the product and work with a partner. And, you know, I I think any VC will be like, oh, just work with a design partner, but actually doing it day to day It'd be super challenging. It's going to be super challenging and you've got to listen. You've got to listen a lot because your users know what they want often, especially if your speech is not brand new and they've they've been there for a while. Mm -hmm. So I'm just so glad to get a chance to catch up with you. It sounds like things are going great at Prophecy and uh, look forward to the next releases of GemHub and your LLM. Yeah, sounds good. All right. It was a pleasure, Jocelyn. Take care. Thanks.